0: We're here in Luke 17, but I want to suggest that actually there is a very clear theme being developed throughout Luke, uh, particularly in this this part of Luke. In chapter 15, we've had the classic parables of forgiveness, and we're taught there that we must forgive. And in chapter 16, we have this difficult parable of the unjust steward, and we suggested when we looked at that that What that's really saying is that we are all the unjust steward, we have wasted the Lord's goods, and there is an urgency now, judgment day is coming, and we must, we absolutely must do something about it, and what that man did was to run around and forgive other people their debts, their sins if you like, even though he didn't really have the right to do that, and even though he acted without integrity, and even though he had wasted his Lord's goods, and even though he was somewhat proud and arrogant, He was too ashamed to to dig or to beg and yet the point of the parable I suggested was to show the huge importance of forgiveness and of how we treat others and in that chapter, in that parable of the unjust steward there's also I think a double edge to it that it's also talking about how we use our material wealth and that also is related to our eternity And that theme sort of goes on then at the end of chapter 16 with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that the rich man is not in the kingdom because of his attitude to his poor brother. And then in chapter 17, we have here more clear and direct teaching about the actual return of Jesus. And yet the point has been led up to by, particularly in chapter 16, the idea being that because Jesus is coming, because judgment day is coming, Therefore, how we act and feel towards others is of paramount importance. Our forgiveness of them, our generosity to others, etc., be it material, be it more spiritual in terms of forgiveness, this is of paramount importance. And so it's understandable then that now we have teaching about the actual coming of, of the Lord. And yet that teaching is in this context of our need to prepare for it urgently by our behavior to others. And so having talked about the rich man and Lazarus and unjust steward and the urgent need to forgive and not being like the oldest son who's left outside of the kingdom because he will not accept his, his brother in, in chapter 15, then we come here to chapter 17. And he says, if you offend Somebody, And that doesn't mean that they take umbrage with you. It means that you cause them to stumble in their path to to the kingdom. It says it's better for that person that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So take heed to yourselves, verse 3, if your brother sin against you, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. The offence to others, I therefore suggest, is in our unforgiveness. That is the context of chapters 15 and 16 before this, and that's the context of verse 3 straight afterwards. We can cause others to stumble by not forgiving them. And of course we could say, well, yeah, but they should get right with God, and it's God who forgives them, not us. Yes, that is so, but the problem is that in practice... In reality, on the ground, a lot of people perceive the attitude of their church or other believers as being somehow the attitude of God. Now, they're wrong to do that, but that is how it is. So many times, I've seen this happen, and probably you have. Somebody gets excluded wrongly from an ecclesia, from a church, they're disfellowshipped, etc., And within a fairly short space of time, their faith in God collapses. Now, unfortunately, you can see what's happened. They have sort of equated God and Jesus with the community. And maybe it was the community that first preached to them and brought them to faith in God and Jesus. And then when they're badly treated and not forgiven or not accepted by that community, they tend to think that that's what God did to them. Now, that's not true, that's incorrect, but it's unfortunate that that's how a lot of people think. And Jesus perceived that. And so he's saying that you can make somebody to stumble, you can offend them, by not forgiving them. And this is so important. And in in that sense, although we don't want to be the representatives of, of God in that sense, we are. Because we are the face of Jesus to this world. A lot of people have no other contact with Jesus initially than from what they see in you and me. We are his body in this world. Now, when he says that the the fate awaiting the person who causes his brother or sister to stumble by not forgiving them is to have a millstone put around his neck and be thrown into the sea, that's exactly what's going to happen to Babylon on you want the reference, it's Revelation 18, verse 21. And I think what Jesus is saying, and don't forget it was Jesus who also spoke Revelation, uh, the connection he's making is that if you, in your self-righteousness, you, a member of the true ecclesia of God, do not forgive your brother and cause your brother to, to stumble in any way, you are as bad as Babylon, and you will be punished as if you are Babylon. Babylon set up there as the great whore the epitome of wickedness and sin and hatred of God and aggression towards God and God's people and all the rest of it you are going to share Babylon's judgment and I think that may be in mind when Paul talks in the context of the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians 11 about condemn yourself now in your self-examination lest you be condemned with the world it's as if the condemnation of the wicked of the last day is really to so look go back into the world in some cases it might be look your heart was never really with me your heart was only with the guys at work and the uh, your old school friends and you you know going out drinking with them and hanging out with them Look, that's where your heart was look go back to them that's it they all you know the. the this is a world that's facing judgment, let's face it. And uh, you didn't want me, you wanted them, so go back to them. And that's that's the end of it. And yet, it can also be true in another sense, that those who maybe have been the most pious, religious kind of people, but in their self-righteousness and arrogance, have refused to forgive their brother, who have, like the older brother, said, if he's back, I'm out of here. I'm storming out of the meeting, I'm not going to be breaking bread with that person, uh, those sorts of people, also according to all what Jesus is teaching, and let's let's not miss it, they may be bundled up with their three-piece suits and their ties and their white shirts and their black shoes and the rest of it, and be hurled into the sea just as Babylon. And they're going to be like, "But Lord, Lord, I'm not part of Babylon. I've preached against Babylon. I witness that Babylon's evil," and etc. etc. The point is forgiveness of others is absolutely crucial now of course they ask him the obvious question well how do you judge the sincerity of repentance and he, he that's sort of put uh, differently in the other gospels but it's the same, same thing and Jesus answers that by saying look uh, it's seven times a day he sins against you, and seven times a day says, I repent, or you shall forgive him. In the, uh, in the other Gospels, of course, it puts it higher, 70 times, 7, 490 times. Uh, seven, I think, is being used here in, in Luke's record as the number of, of completeness. That even if he, an unlimited number of times, says to you, I repent for the same sin every day, forgive him now it's pretty obvious that the person's repentance is not sincere you don't seven times a day or unlimited number of times a day or 490 times a day abuse somebody and each time say ah oh, yeah sorry about that and go on and do it again i mean in the other parable when it talk, in the other record when it talks about 70 times 7 490 times i mean there's only 24 hours in a day and eight of those you're sleeping so 490 times out of let's say 16 hours. Well, you can you can do the math, but I mean that's every few minutes. And if if the person says I I repent, forgive them. The point is obviously their repentance is not sincere, but you forgive them anyway. So I think Jesus is saying here don't even start probing the genuineness of another's repentance, just forgive. Now of course you can argue the other way that nope I will only forgive if I see the repentance is sincere. Okay, you can you can act like that, but with what measure you measure, it shall be measured to you. And do you want to come the day of judgment and stand before the presence of his glory and be treated like that? Oh, whoops. I forgot to repent of that sin. And David says, Psalm 19, that we have secret sins. And he asks God to forgive him for those sins. Sins we do that we don't even realize. And if you're honest, you will have realized that in your spiritual path so far in your life. That there were things you used to do and didn't think were a sin. That now you realize were sinful. And you ask God to forgive you for what you did in, in ignorance in that sense. <clears throat> Although it's still counted as a sin. Just as sins of ignorance still had to be atoned for. the sacrifice still had to be offered. Sin is sin, and that's it. Um, Quite apart from the fact that how many times do you find yourself sinning and asking God to forgive you over, I don't know how to say this, but I don't like to use the word small sins, but I think you know what I mean, Uh, over something which uh, might be considered by many to be relatively petty, but you know that it's wrong you know, swirling under your breath for many people is uh, a a, a sort of sin that I I think they would uh, recognize and yet, okay, you ask God to forgive you but you know that you're going to repeat that sin do you not? how many of your sins are one off sins do you really mean to tell me that you sin whoops, I repent, I'm forgiven and I will not do that again no do you not rather sin say, oh, please forgive me Oh, whoops, do the same thing again, or in essence, do the same thing again. Time and time and time again. Yes, you do. Don't kid yourself that you don't. You do. Now, seeing that that is the reality of spiritual life, it becomes crucial that you show that forgiveness to others. That is absolutely vital because of how we ultimately are going to be judged. And then they say, Lord, increase our faith. What is the conne- that's in verse 5. What is the connection between faith and forgiving others? Well, I think faith is ultimately in the fact that we who are sinners have been forgiven. That we who are sinners will surely be saved. If you really believe that, then you will forgive others. That is what you will do. And that is, I think, the connection between faith and forgiveness of, of others. And Jesus tries to motivate them a bit in this business of forgiving others and realizing our own sinfulness. By telling this parable in verses uh, 7 to 10, he talks about a man who has a servant. And the guy is out there plowing, feeding cattle. And then... Um, <coughs> In the evening, when they, they come in, the master says to the servant, You make ready wherewith I may eat. And gird yourself and serve me, as 8, until I have eaten and drunken. And afterward, you eat and drink. And does he thank the servant, the slave, because he did what he commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which you commanded, you say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do now, unprofitable servant this is the very same term on the lord 's lips in matthew twenty five verse thirteen you may like to scribble that down matthew twenty five thirty but the unprofitable servant is to be cast out and is to be condemned, so he's saying that when you have done all that is commanded, realize that you are to be condemned now. The master, he says, has no need to thank the slave. And that's the Greek word charis, which is that usually translated grace. He doesn't need to show grace to the slave, because the slave is a slave, and that's who he is. He's a slave. And yet, I think that the whole thing has a, another kind of uh, interpretation here, that, in fact, we are shown grace the, the, the master doesn't need to show grace he's a, to his slave but Jesus does we know that and does he thank him? does he give him grace for what he's done? no he doesn't have to because he's a slave 1st Corinthians 4 verse 5 when Jesus comes then shall every man in Christ have praise of God and in the Lord's palable Uh, another of his parables he talks about how when Jesus comes he will say to the righteous well done when I was hungry you fed me he will praise them you visited me when I was in prison etc he will as it were thank them for all they did to him and when he says here that the master says to the slave look make ready wherewith I may eat and gird yourself and serve me these are the very words that Jesus has used in Luke 12:37, where he says that when he comes back, he will gird himself and come forth at the great messianic banquet, which the breaking of bread symbolizes, and he will serve us. Now, these connections are intended to be made. It's as if he's saying that, look, you're slaves, you're unprofitable servants, you're worthy of condemnation. But by a huge grace, I will show you grace when I absolutely don't have to. And instead of asking you to come and serve me, which you should do because you're my slave, I will come and gird myself and serve you. And of course, the, the Last Supper was really the uh, the great uh, point of this in, in practice. So then the slave, <clears throat> as a slave, expected Nothing at all. He expected no thanks, no grace. He did not expect the Lord, his master, to serve him. He did not expect to be thanked, to be recognized. But he will be. That's, but we will be. That's, that's the point. Now, Jesus is really showing us that in the context of the need to forgive... This is how we must perceive ourselves as slaves who are even how righteous you think you are, even if you do all those things which are commanded, you are still worthy of condemnation. You are not worthy of any grace because you are a slave. You are less than a person in, in that sense. You are sold into slavery by your sin. And yet the connection with Luke 12:37. and every man having praise of God, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. This shows that actually we will not be treated like this. Now, insofar as we feel the wonder of that grace, we will find the strength to forgive. We will find the motivation to forgive. And if we struggle with forgiveness, and I think we all do, of forgiving others, it is really a reflection of our own I think lack of realisation of the depth of our own sin, the certainty of our own condemnation without God's grace. And in the same way as I think we find it difficult to believe that I really will be in God's kingdom. I mean, let's face it, if we believe that, we would act very differently, I think, than how we do. If we believe that 24-7, that, wow, I will, by God's grace, really be in His kingdom, My sin is no longer a barrier between him and me. Wow. Then, if we are like that, we will find the motivation to totally forgive others. The fact that we do not totally forgive others very often, and let's face it, we we often don't. We may psychologically cut out the pain of what they have done, just as unbelievers can achieve that but I don't think that is quite the same as forgiveness. We may forget or make ourselves forget certain things that were done to us by certain people. Um, That can be achieved psychologically by even total atheists. So that is not Christian forgiveness. Christian forgiveness is rooted all the way through Jesus' teaching, He, he brings this out, is rooted in our own experience of God's grace to us. And as a rule of thumb, I would say, or biblically, theoretically, this must be the case, that those who do not forgive others are those who actually doubt their own place in God's kingdom and who doubt their own forgiveness. And that has been my general observation. Of course, who knows the hearts of other people? Uh, But generally, I I would uh, say that from hearing people openly saying that who knows if we're going to be saved, it's arrogant to think we're going to be in the kingdom, we don't know, we have no idea, uh, we may well not be. They're, they tend to be the very same people who are so unforgiving, and who cause so much trouble in in churches and in, in ecclesial life. And the theme doesn't end there, here in, in Luke 17, because straight after this, Luke uh, tells us that, verse 11 he's going uh, to Jerusalem and he goes through the middle of Samaria in Galilee and he meets uh, ten lepers and they ask for mercy and they're cleansed and one of them is uh, healed, one of those that's healed comes back and thanks Jesus and he is a Samaritan verse 16 now the the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans and we, we know that from biblical testimony and the whole thing about the good Samaritan b- being such a, a shock to the system uh, for the Jewish people that Jesus would liken himself to a Samaritan. They, they had nothing to do with them. They would not mix together. Well, it's, it's recorded that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet, these lepers, in their desperation, I think we're intended to understand, were Jews and Samaritans together. They all suffered from the same disease, so they were excluded from the uh, from the village they had to stand uh, stay far off out of the village. They were united by their leprosy, and I think that is recorded here in this same context <coughs> because we're being shown that our desperation our desperation should bind us together with each other so then <coughs> let's also uh, notice just in passing that in verse 11 that as he went up to Jerusalem he went through Samaria and Galilee now actually here, he's going north. If you plot out Luke's journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, it, it zigzags all over the place. And yet, the theme is that he's going up to Jerusalem to die. And yet, sometimes, even when he heads away from Jerusalem, that is described as still going to Jerusalem. i just mention that just in passing, because our own path, eventually, to the cross, our own path, ultimately, to God's kingdom, zigzags terribly and even at times it seems you're going away from it but in the bigger picture as it was with the lord's journey to jerusalem as recorded in luke in the end you are going there in conclusion i'd like to just comment on the um, the, the lord's words in 21 when they they ask when the uh, kingdom of god would would come and he says don't say look here or low there <clears throat> because the kingdom of god is among you and i think among you is the uh, is the right translation there he's using the kingdom of god as a title for himself you see that really when the crowds shouted in mark 11 9 and 10 blessed is he that's messiah that comes in the name of the lord blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. So they understood the kingdom and Messiah to be one and the same. In Matthew 3, 2 and 3, John the Baptist preached that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was prophesied, Jesus. So the kingdom is a title for Jesus. And yeah, they were looking around for this kingdom. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the kingdom and I'm standing right amongst you. So then, why would Jesus be given this title of of the kingdom? I think it is that our future eternity, in God's future kingdom, is going to, in that sense, be Jesus. It's going to be all about Him. All that you see of Him, as He is here in the Gospels, in Galilee, etc., all you see and know of Jesus is what the kingdom is going to be about now in verse 24 down to 26 just see how he talks about uh, himself well actually verse 22 he says the days will come when you shall desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you shall not see it I take that to mean I'm only here for so long and then I won't be here and then you will look back and desire just to relive one of those days here in Galilee, when I, the Son of Man, was amongst you. So the days of the Son of Man are the days of his mortal ministry. And then he goes on to use that same idea of the day of the Son of Man. In in verse 24 he says, as the lightning uh, strikes uh, all over the sky, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. So he's using the days of the Son of Man to refer to the days of his ministry on earth, and also the days of his coming, his actual second coming. I think the point is, that as Hebrews puts it, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus who walked around Galilee, The Jesus who loved little children. The Jesus who was so urgent that we should forgive. The Lord of all grace. He who sat in the boat and taught the people. He who played with the children. He who took the little boys, five loaves and two fishes and blessed them and multiplied them. He who was so patient with people. He who had a heart that bled for Lazarus. Who wept really for the grief and the the weeping of others when they were weeping at Lazarus' grave this same Jesus shall come again and I think the angels had that in mind when they said this same Jesus who you've seen go into heaven shall come again they mean the Jesus whom you knew he's not going to come back as a different person and in that I think we can take a great comfort that the Jesus that we know from the pages of the Gospels is going to be the very same Jesus that we meet In the day of judgment. The Jesus who hated religious hypocrisy. Religious structures. Abuse of people on any level. The Jesus who came to save. Who loves. Any who truly respond to him. This is the Jesus. Whom we will meet when he comes again.